you open it up to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 48. John 8, 48. If you're new to fellowship and you're going, wait, they let that guy teach the Bible too? Uh, no, they don't. I've got the other guy duct taped in the back. He's not coming out this morning. John 8, 48. Um, I am a huge believer. If you've been here long enough uh, and heard me teach enough, I am a huge believer in God's providence, meaning God's sovereign control over all things. Uh, I, I truly believe that. I believe that's the only God worth worshiping is a God who is that huge and powerful. And so I've had a lot of people say, what are you going to say this morning? And I've said, I think this passage is what I'm going to say. We've been studying the book of John for months and we come to the passage this morning where Jesus more definitively than any other place in the Bible says, I am Lord. And that's as good a message as there is ever to teach. So we won't deviate from that at all. John chapter eight, verse 48. Remember when you were a kid and you would be in a group of adults and they'd be talking and uh, something would be said and the whole room would change. And you realized they just said something I don't get. Like I'm a kid, I don't understand the conversation and they just said something that I don't get, but something just happened, right? Like today, if that happened, the kid would say, mama, I don't understand. And the, you know, they'd be like, you're right. You know, that's right. You're not, that's not fair. Let's, let's, everyone we're changing the topic to why Anna is better than Elsa. Okay. Like that's like when my day, when I was a kid, it'd be like, mama, I don't understand. It'd be now be quiet, get on your bike, ride three miles and buy me some cigarettes. That's like, <laughs> we are in a different time. We're in a different era. Okay. Um, But if you open up John chapter eight and you start reading, uh, you read a very heated discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees who are the Jewish uh, religious leaders or some of the Jewish religious leaders. And you see this very heated discussion go along. And then all of a sudden at the end of chapter eight, it says, and they picked up rocks to stone him. So essentially it says they get into a discussion Jesus says something to them that at first glance, when you read what he says to them, you're going to go, that is not that big a deal. But their reaction is they pick up rocks to kill him. They're going to murder him. Uh, that, so you, if you know nothing else about this passage and you know none of the cultural, theological, uh, even racial things that are, are woven through this passage, you're not going to get the whole meaning of it. But you do get that whatever Jesus is doing here, what he says to them is big enough for them to pick up rocks and try to kill him. So we can't be tone deaf to this passage because obviously something massive happens in the text Let's, let's dig it out. Let's pull out all its pieces and let me show you the fullness of what Jesus has to say at the end of this conversation that he's been having with these Pharisees. All right. So in verse eight, uh, chapter eight, verse 48, uh, it says to them, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Okay. That's how we start conversations in Texas. I don't know. I've never gotten how y'all start them here, but that's how we start in Texas. Um, obviously, they're, they're mid-conversation here. Jesus has said some things to them. They say, are we not right in saying you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Um, to dig this out for you a little bit, let me just put it to you this way. Saying that he's demon-possessed is the smaller offensive phrase. Like when someone says you're demon possessed and that's not the most offensive thing they just said to you, you're in a different conversation, right? Uh, when they, when they call him a Samaritan, it might ring false to us, but you have to bring in 
all of who these people are and what they mean by that declaration. All right, so these are Jewish religious leaders and their understanding of their religion and their race is that they are the descendants of Abraham, the physical children of Abraham. They are Jews, they are Israel. And Abraham received a promise from God that told him, all your descendants will be my people, essentially. Your descendants are my people. And so I'm boiling this down very simplistically, but these, okay, these, these religious leaders, they understand their religion and their race as being God. It keeps them with God. God loves them because of who they were born as. And this tension that you feel going on here, I mean, okay, just think about the last six weeks of tension in our country regarding race and religion. And imagine if they were all one big thing. Because that's what this passage is about. These guys are going, uh, you're a Samaritan. Samaritans are the children of Jews who centuries before had intermarried with Babylonians and then continued to worship God under Judaism or a Judaism, a faux Judaism. They made their own temple. They made their own worship. They made their own sacrifices. And they said, we're really Abraham's descendants. So to the, to the Jewish proper guys, the Pharisees, the worst thing you could call somebody is a, is a Samaritan because they're not really Jewish. They're acting like they are and they're trying to be Jewish in religion and they're not. I mean, this is as big a name as they can call him, essentially. Are we not right in saying you're a Samaritan? You are a race traitor blasphemer. Uh, I know those, those words almost fall deaf on our ears in some ways. But they are bringing every charge they can against him. So see, I told you, like being called demon-possessed is not that big a deal in this passage, right? Uh, but that's what they're bringing together. They're bringing together this whole idea of we're God's people and you're not. That should be familiar to us. Right? We're God's people, you're not. And Jesus answered them in verse 49, and he says to them, uh, I do not have a demon. I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it, and he is the judge. All through the book of John, not just in this passage, in this passage we're going to see it a couple times, but all through the book of John, we're going to watch over and over again as Jesus refuses to glorify himself. He was given opportunity after opportunity to show them the full of fullness of his glory, but he won't do it. He always submits himself to God. He always says, I will not glorify myself. I will wait to see if the father will do it. That's essentially what he's kind of going here. So follow Jesus's logic here. He's saying, I won't, I won't glorify myself. I will see if the father will glorify me. If the father does glorify me, then that's his, that's his desire. That's what he wants. And that's all I want is what he wants. And if he doesn't, that's what he wants. So that's what I want. And I'm fine with that, is, is essentially what Jesus is saying. If God wants to glorify me, he will. If he doesn't, he won't. And I'm fine with either of those. Like, consider Jesus in Gethsemane. Do you remember in Gethsemane? He's praying and he says to God, I don't want to go to the cross. If there's any way this cup may pass from me, then let it be done. But not 
my will, yours be done. That's Jesus' attitude through this whole thing. So as he gets into this conflict with the Pharisees, you're going to watch them begin to ask him, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Um, in, in a pejorative sense, in them trying to goad him. And he keeps saying, I'm not going to glorify myself. If, it, if the father wants to glorify me, that's fine. And if he doesn't, that's fine. And in fact, we're going to watch the father do both those things. He's going to allow Jesus to be ultimately denigrated on the cross and then ultimately glorified through the resurrection. So you're going to watch Jesus totally submit himself to that. So he says, I, I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it and he is the judge. And then in, in verse 51 is where Jesus takes a turn in this conversation that he's been having with them that really begins the escalation of it. In verse 51, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Okay, Uh, Jesus is Jewish. If that's a shock to you, I'm really sorry, but he is. Jesus is Jewish. And in Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew language, when you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. Okay, you, you repeat it. So anytime, if you've ever read the New Testament and you read it and you see, uh, you know, there's always these repetitions of words or you go to the Old Testament, there's these repetition of words. In Hebrew, when you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. Like they don't have like, you know, emoticons. It's not like Jesus could go, rainbow, unicorn, I say to you. Like he can't do that. That's not, you know, he can't, that's not gonna help out, you know. Like I just envision Jesus kind of going, I say to you, if you follow my words, you will never see death. Hashtag drops mic. Like, and them going, what does that mean? He goes, you don't, you're not going to get it for 2000 years, but it was awesome. Like it, that's not a particularly helpful to the guys listening. So he repeats it. Truly, truly. I say to you, uh, in Hebrew, if you repeat anything three times, you are emphasizing it to perfection. So you're saying, if you say, if you say anything three times, you're saying, I'm repeating this three times. So you understand I'm speaking about perfection. I'm not just wanting you to pay attention to me. I'm trying to say, this is the perfection of what I'm trying to say. And in the whole Bible, there's only two things that are repeated three times. And they're both about God. And the first one is that God is holy, holy, holy. That's the Hebrew way of saying God is perfection in his holiness. The other way is about God when it says the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the place where God lives. That's it. So when you see Jesus say truly, truly, right? For us, that's there's, this is all bold caps with 15 exclamation points. And they're, the listeners would have immediately gone, whoa, truly, truly, I say to you, if you keep my word, you will never see death. Right? One of the ways that the Bible uh, wants, that we need to understand the Bible, interpret the Bible, is when it says death, in this sense, and when Jesus says these things, he is not talking about physical death. He's not saying, if you keep my word, you won't physically die. He's talking about a spiritual death that will come because of our sins when we are judged before God. A death of the destruction of the soul, so to speak. A death, a spiritual death. He's saying, if you follow my words, you will never see that. They, of course, don't understand that. And they immediately seize on that aspect of physical death. 
And this is what they roll with in John eight fifty two. And the Jews said to him, and again, we, I say this every time, John uses the Jews and it sounds like everybody, that's not it. It's not every Jew. John is a Jew and John believes in Jesus and didn't protest Jesus. Paul is a Jew who doesn't protest Jesus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee Jew who doesn't protest. It's not everybody, it's most. It is most. So when John says that, he's talking about these, these men who are attacking Jesus. And the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? Now remember, to them, Abraham is the greatest man there is. He is the man that God gave a promise to that has trickled down into the Judaism they live by and is the promise God gave them. So Abraham is the greatest man they can think of. And then they say the prophets. And by the prophets, they mean everybody from Moses to Malachi and everybody in between. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Elijah, Elisha, Habakkuk, Obadiah. I'm just, I'm trying to think of more names. I can't think of them. All of them. And the Jews understand those men, pay attention, to be the men God chose to be his very voice in the world. So what they're asking Jesus is, how do you think you're greater than Abraham, who is the man God chose, or greater than all the men God chose to be the very voice of God in the world Do you think you're greater than that? They again point to their heritage, their lineage. When they say, are you greater than our father Abraham? Are you greater than our father Abraham? Uh, Earlier in this conversation, you get this lineage, this racial religious overtone playing itself out. When the Jews say to Jesus, they say, we know who our father is. Our father is Abraham. And many scholars, not all, many see a dig at Jesus that there was something squirrely about Jesus's parentage that people knew about. That word had spread. Yeah, his mom and dad were married, but she had him kind of weirdly early. Like something was weird. But we don't know what it was, but they were married, so we really can't, like something's weird. So they're going, well, we know who our father is. He's Abraham. Abraham's our father. And you know what Jesus says to them? Think of everything I've just told you. Jesus says, and they go, we know who our father is. Our father's Abraham. He says, your father is the devil. All right? Now, I don't know. If your vision of or version of Jesus is the Jesus who just walks around going, let's hug. (laughs) And then just goes, let's hug and let's go make a unicorn. Come on. (laughs) Jesus is our tender, kind savior. But Jesus is also the guy who made whips and whipped people out of the temple. Right? Don't. Don't shortchange the fullness of who he is. When they go, we know who our father is. He tells them, your father's the devil. I, I, I don't know if you know this, but 
I'm guessing it didn't go over well (laughs) when he says that to them. That's total guess that it does not go over well. But note that Jesus speaks to them the truth. And don't mistake his motive here. His motive here is not to insult them, which is how they take it. His, his method here is, his motive here is to tell them the truth so they will wake up and repent of the man-made religion they've built around Judaism that they put more emphasis in than the actual Judaism God had given them to follow. Do not mistake speaking the truth in love, even if it's not taken well, as being insulting or unchrist-like. Because Christ spoke the truth in very charged moments, regardless of the outcome. But he spoke it in love to wake up these people. That's what he does here. Are you greater than Abraham? Are you greater than the prophets? Do you think you're better than the man God chose? Do you think you're better than the men God chose to be the very voices of God in the world? And in verse 54, Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. Again, Jesus refuses to glorify himself. He says, if God wants to glorify me, that's fine, but I will not glorify myself. Now get ready. He's about to throw another fastball at him. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Abraham lived millennia before Jesus did. And they're, they're incredulous at this point. You're saying you're greater than Abraham. You're saying Abraham saw you and was happy about it. What are you saying? Now, here's a little bit of background here that may give you a little bit of an image. John loves hiding symbols in his, in his, in his narrative. All through this book, if you've been, if you've been here as we've been teaching John, there's little phrases, little bitty things that if you'll catch it are just these huge comments he's making in little bitty sentences. And here's one. They say, you are not yet 50 years old. Now, Jesus, uh, is in his thirties. But we don't know exactly how old he is, but he's in his 30s. And they say, you aren't yet 50, which is like this terrible guess as to how old he is. If they're going, well, you're not like even 50. Like, why are they throwing out that number? That's weird. Like, why would they say that? You are not yet 50 years old. All right, here's why. Jewish priests retired when they turned 50. When you turn 50, uh, it, it, it kind of goes back to the year of Jubilee. You have seven years of seven years, seven times of seven years, 49 years. In the 50th year, you, you ended your service to God. 
And the picture of a priest who had served his 49 years and ended on it when he turned 50 uh, was that he now was completed. He understood Judaism. He had served Judaism. He had served God. His time was ended and complete. You get the image? And they're going, those people don't know Abraham. Those people didn't see Abraham. And Jesus is going, those people served their whole lives and never got Abraham. They've served their whole lives and never gotten what any of this is about, is what John is digging in here. You're not yet 50, and you say you know Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. When you see they pick up stones to throw at him, it means they're going to kill him. It's not just like they're throwing rocks at the kid and being bullies. They're going to kill him. And somewhere in there, if you aren't familiar with this passage, is a statement that makes them instantly go from, what are you talking about, to we've got to kill this guy. All right? What is that statement? Okay? Uh, When Moses meets God at the burning bush, thousands of years before this, Moses... Uh, meets God at a burning bush and, and, and God tells Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to get my people who are enslaved and I want you to lead them to a land I'll show you. And Moses eventually says, okay, he says no a bunch. Don't say no to God a bunch, like once maybe, but then it's going to turn bad. But he keeps telling God no. And so finally he says he'll go. And then he says, who do I say sent me God? What is your name? And God tells him, my name is Yahweh. Uh, in Hebrew, we don't even know exactly how they said it because they never even would write the name down with all of its vowels. Um, he tells them, my name is Yahweh. Well, Israel goes on and, and they get their, their Old Testament Bible and that name Yahweh, uh, they don't, they won't even write it down. They just put the consonants down so that you know it means the proper name of God. Well, you know, millennia go by, centuries go by, and Israel is dominated and captured by Alexander the Great. One of the great things Alexander the Great does uh, in conquering all these lands is he, he brings Greek, the Greek language everywhere, and everybody speaks Greek. So that when, when Alexander dies and the civil wars happen and then uh, Julius Caesar kind of takes over and then all these kind of things, Greek still is one of the languages of this area for centuries. So that by the time Jesus comes along, um, scholars think that Jesus was probably trilingual, that he spoke Hebrew for church, Aramaic for all the people he lived with, and Greek for, you had to be able to speak Greek because you could talk to anybody if you spoke Greek. Um, so the Hebrews, uh, the, the, the Jewish religion leaders who have the old Testament in Hebrew, uh, they go along and they say, you know what? Most of our people, they don't even speak Hebrew anymore. Totally. They speak Greek. Let's translate the old Testament into Greek and legend has it, it was 70 scholars who did it. And they call that book, that Greek old Testament. Now the Septuagint, the 70, the Septuagint. And when those Hebrew authors take that name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, and translate it into Greek, they translate it as the Greek, Egoimi. Egoimi. Right? That's this new line for the name of God. If you take 
Yahweh in the Old Testament, or you take Egoimi in Greek, it simply translates as I am. So when you read this passage in John and it says, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. You don't go, Jesus, bad grammar. Let's do better than that, right? Right? You, this is terrible grammar, Jesus, but it's great theology. Because he says, before Abraham was, I am. He says, Iwimi, I am. Imi. And if you don't believe that whole thing, watch their reaction. Because it doesn't seem like the big a deal. It seems like he can't conjugate his subject and verbs. And they're going to pick up rocks and they're going to kill him. Because their question has been, who do you think you are? Who is greater than Abraham? Who is greater than all the men God picked to be the very voice of God in the world? And Jesus says, I am. God is. Jesus is definitively saying, he is God in the flesh. Standing before them, telling them, what God thinks about this whole thing. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is definitively calling himself God here. I am. And they know it. They pick up rocks to stone him. Again, John loves putting spiritual truths into physical realities. Or using physical realities to describe spiritual truths. And read the next sentence. They picked up stones to throw at him, but he hid himself from them and went out of the temple. You get that? Do you see that? He hid himself from them and he left the temple. John is given a prophecy of what's going to happen to these men. They are going to defend and kill God for a godless temple. Because they can't see him. I've always kind of wondered, how did he hide himself? What does that mean? Is that like a David Copperfield trick? Like, watch his eyes, gone. There was a rabbit there and he was gone. Like, that would have been kind of cool. If I was Jesus, I'd have done something like crazy like that. There's 12 rabbits. I don't know. Good thing I'm not. So, is Jesus God? And if he is It changes everything. Is the Bible's consistent witness that Jesus is God or is this just one little stroke of a pen or is this one line or is this the apostolic testimony of who Jesus is? Did the closest men to Jesus, did the men who who were entrusted to carry the message of Jesus believe he was God or is that something the church invented and kind of tried to do it to solidify their power? Does they believe that? The answer is resoundingly yes. The earliest Christians understood Jesus was God and called himself God. Okay? Gandalf can tell you something different in the Da Vinci Code movie. The Bible says something different. You're going to have to do like lots of math to get that pop culture reference. Okay? Watch this play itself out. The book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote, wrote the book of Hebrews. But if you're trying to write a letter to Hebrews, because the book of Hebrews is written for 
Hebrews. Okay, I don't know what to do with y'all this morning. I really don't. Like, it's written for Hebrews, and you want them to consider Christianity and become Christians, and you don't think that Jesus is God, then you don't put that in the letter to the Hebrews in the first eight verses. Right? If you don't think that, you don't want to overly offend you. Hey, consider our claim about who Jesus is. They go, nope, you better listen. Jesus is God. Hebrews chapter one, verse eight. He's been talking, whoever wrote this, it was talking about how God's, how the son is superior to angels. To which of the angels has God ever said this? To which of the angels has God ever said this? But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is a quotation from Psalm 45. So in the Old Testament, even, there's a, the, the author of the Hebrews is trying to tell these Hebrews, hey, in our Old Testament, in Hebrews, there's a reference to God anointing God, God. Because God will only be anointed God by God, and God will anoint God as God. Because when God wants to anoint God, God, he must anoint God as God, or he's not God, and recognize God, who is God, and also God. That made total sense. You gotta go back and listen to it. I promise you. The author of the Hebrews says he is God and God has anointed him God. That's a powerful thing. John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. See, John 8 is just illumining John 1, 1. Titus, this is the apostle Paul. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Greek word there for God is the Greek word theos. It's where we get all our English words relating to God, like theology, those kind of things. Theos, the word for God. This is not an Oxford comma moment where it is uh, the appearing of the glory of our great God, comma, and our Savior Jesus Christ, as though they are different. These are the same things. Our God and Savior Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul also, in the book of Romans, his magnum opus, his great discussion of Christian theology, when he finally gets to Israel and discusses how Israel plays into all this in Romans chapter nine, which is about divine election and his purpose of showing who the true children of Abraham are, says this in Romans nine. So if you've had a, if you're Paul and you write this letter, you're thinking there's gonna be Jewish adherents who read this, they're gonna read the whole thing and get to Romans nine, they're gonna go, okay, finally, this is about us. This is not the time to offend them by saying that Jesus is God unless you believe Jesus is God. In Romans 9, he says to them, he's talking about Jews, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever, amen. Theos, Paul, Jesus is God. Peter, 2 Peter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have tamed a faith, equal standing of ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have John, we have Paul, we have Peter, who would have all been considered the leaders of the church, everyone affirming in different letters to different people so it would be disseminated as wide as possible. Jesus is God, don't doubt it. 
Don't doubt it. When Jesus stands up and says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He is roaring his divinity. I am God. And I have come here not to judge you, but to save you. Amen. But because of that, we have got to do away with any notion that Jesus was just a man. That he was just the guy with some good ideas. That he was just a man and had some great concepts like love your neighbor, like uh, pray for your enemy, turn the other cheek. That he was God saying those things. That he was God affirming all the things that he affirmed and denying all the things he denied. Thinking that Jesus is just a dude is not one of our options. No one says this better than C.S. Lewis. He says it like this. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So we say it. Praise be to our Lord, our God, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. 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 And we praise him. Would you stand and pray with me? So we close our time together. If you need prayer for anything, some of our elders and their spouses will be here to pray with you. If you need prayer about something going on in your life, health, work, family, We'd love to pray with you, but especially this morning, if you need to know and hear about Jesus as God and a God who took on flesh to come and save us, what does that mean? If you'd love to talk about that, we'd love to talk about that. We'd love to pray with you. Let's pray together as a congregation and then we will be dismissed. Our Father and God, our King, we praise you that you have shown us the fullness of of yourself, a God who is one God, but three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God, our minds cannot wrap around the realities of all that you are, but why should they be able to? We are dust that you have given breath to. Let's not climb the mountain and demand all the knowledge. Let us live with the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let us call you God and seek your counsel, Jesus. We praise you, Jesus, for doing what only God could do, which is make a way for sinners like us. 
as a sacrifice for our sins. God took on our flesh, bore our penalty, so we could receive his reward. That is silliness. But it's the gospel. We praise you, Jesus. We thank you, our Lord God and King. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer, please come. Otherwise, grace, peace to you this week. Take care.